This morning we're going to wrap up the Christmas story, but first let's pray. Help us to sing, uh, God, with the choir uh, when they're singing and when uh, they are silent. To sing alleluia, to sing praise to you with words and utterances that we may not fully understand deep in our spirits. You have come and visited us. You dwell within us through your spirit. Continue to revive us and draw us to you in worship and homage. Help us uh, to be attentive to you and to your word as we read from the scriptures now. Give us ears that are good to hear and eyes of our hearts that are good to see. Plant within us things that will grow and bring you glory and bring joy to your people and your name to the earth. We pray these things in Christ the Lord. Amen. So there are parts of history including our own national history and in some cases our personal history, that we'd rather not remember, that we would rather not talk about, that are not pleasant to talk about. When I think back on American history, it was only a little more than 150 years ago that the cultural norm in the United States and the law of the land that a person, a citizen of the United States, could own another person. And specifically, people of African descent who had been brought to the United States, to our country, against their will from Africa. Those people could be owned. Those people could be used. Those people could be and were abused and in some cases could be legally killed by their owners. Their owners who were our great, great grandparents in many cases. They were us. During just the past hundred or so years, Leopold, king of the Belgians, killed 10 million of the 20 million Congolese people. There was a genocide in Armenia that killed a similar percentage of their people. And again in Sudan. And again among and to the Kurds and the Croats, Muslims, and of course the Jews and the Cambodians, all in many of our lifetimes, while many of us and we as a nation often stood and watched from afar. There is much about our history that we do not want to remember or talk about or be reminded of. Also in history, today is Epiphany, which some of you know about, some of you are familiar with. There's a little blurb about in our bulletin this morning. As the note in our bulletin say, the word Epiphany comes from a Greek word that means revelation or appearing or manifestation, making known, and it refers to God's manifestation or his appearing or his making himself known in Jesus 
to the Magi, better known as the wise men, who were Gentiles from the east, who made their way to Bethlehem. Since the early 4th century, Christians, many Christians around the world have treated this day 12 days after Christmas as a time to remember and celebrate the coming of the Magi and their coming to the infant or the toddler by this point, Jesus, to worship him as the one who was born to be king and born to save, which we read about last week, last Sunday morning, and with which we are familiar because that story is so often incorporated into Christmas, into our celebrations of Christmas, into our understanding and our images of Christmas into nativity scenes, into live nativity, Christmas under the stars. This morning on Epiphany, we're going to continue reading where we left off last Sunday, midway through the second chapter of Matthew's gospel, and together hear the rest of the story that is often not read. I've never preached from this passage of scripture. No one really wants to preach from it because no one really wants to hear it or really remember it. It is in many ways material that is for adults only. It is not suitable for children. And yet it is just as much the Word of God, for example, as is John 3.16. And in fact, the gospel is just as present in this part of Matthew's book as it is in the first half of chapter 2 of Matthew's gospel, where we read about the kings, the wise men, the magi coming. So listen closely, beginning at Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. This is the word of God. When the Magi had gone back home, back to the east, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. This Joseph, just like the Old Testament, Joseph interestingly saw many dreams, was spoken to God, spoken to by God through dreams. Get up, the angel said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son, Hosea the prophet. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. Imagine being a parent in Bethlehem at that time. In accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And this is consistent with everything, every record, every bit of history that we know about this particular Herod who was among several Herods known as Herod the Great. He was a ruthless man, a picture of how he's portrayed in one movie, ruthless. In order to protect his crown, he at various times killed three of his own sons, killed wives, thought nothing of suppressing and oppressing and murder. 
And now continuing in verse 19, after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of Archelaus' father, Herod, Herod the Great, He was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, Joseph withdrew to the district of Galilee, which is not near Bethlehem, which is in the north of what we call Israel today. And he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he, the Messiah, would be called a Nazarene. And I've asked myself this week a number of times, why did Matthew include in his gospel this very unusual series of events in the life of Jesus? Why did Matthew, under the inspiration and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, include in his gospel this part of Jesus' life? He doesn't attempt to include everything, every part, every day, every coming or going. Why this part? None of the other gospel writers, none of the other four or the other three make any reference to these events at all. Moreover, if Matthew had just wanted to tell the story of the Magi, the lovely wise men, we three kings, if Matthew had only wanted to tell their story, he could have told their story without bringing Herod the Great into it at all. Matthew could have told the story of the Magi without mentioning Herod and certainly without mentioning Herod's ruthless decree. And the story really wouldn't have lost much. And Matthew's gospel would have been a more pleasant story to read without that information, much more enjoyable to read, much more children-friendly. So why did Matthew include what he very easily could have omitted? There are probably several reasons for such. First, Matthew wants his readers to understand that the circumstances around and connected to the advent of Jesus, the Messiah, fulfilled what had been said, what had been foretold by the prophets about Messiah and fulfilled some of the Jewish people's own very real expectations about the Messiah's coming. You remember that Matthew was the most Jewish of the four gospel writers and Matthew wrote his gospel, directed it to an audience that was more Jewish than the other gospel writers did. And so three times, maybe you noticed in verses 15, 17, and 23, Matthew writes and declares that Jesus fulfilled what had been said or foretold by the prophets of long ago. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt I will bring, I call my son. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah about Rachel weeping for her children in Ramah was fulfilled. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. And while it is true from a scholarly perspective that Matthew interprets the first line from the prophet Hosea a little bit differently than it had historically been interpreted by the people of God as referring to Israel itself being called out of Egypt. And though Matthew stretches Jeremiah by referring to a nearby messianic text in his second reference, and though it seems that Matthew combines various 
prophetic ideas, ideas from various prophets about the Messiah and Nazareth in his third reference, tinkering a bit with history as he did in his genealogy in chapter one, which we talked about on Christmas Eve night. Jesus clearly was understood by Matthew to be the fulfillment of these prophecies. And he has no hesitation in conveying that to his readers. Jesus and the circumstances around his advent had been foretold for centuries. Matthew was not trying to fool anyone. He was not fooling any Jewish person who knew the scriptures, but rather making the point that the child born to Joseph and Mary fit what the prophets had said, what they had spoken long ago. And so that part of Jesus' story must be told. But there's more. Second, by including this episode in his account about Jesus, Matthew is implicitly contrasting the response of the Magi to Jesus with the response of Herod the Great to Jesus. And we could call this the first way in which Matthew contrasts kings. Though we know that the Magi weren't really kings, that that was a legend that developed over the centuries and that was cemented in our minds at least when We Three Kings was written in 1857 by an Episcopalian priest in Philadelphia for a Christmas pageant in New York City. The Magi weren't really kings, but we can nevertheless compare and contrast their response to the baby and King Herod's response to that same baby, which was certainly Matthew's intent. The Magi were the outsiders. They were non-Jews, strangers from a foreign land. They were star readers, astrologers, maybe even fortune tellers, and yet people whom God had invited in and people to whom God had given this revelation of himself and their response to the call from God through a star and their faithfulness in traveling to see this king and their bringing of gifts and their bowing down and their worship of this child contrast sharply with the response of King Herod, who was very much an insider, who was Jewish by faith or culture or upbringing at least, but who was too lazy or too arrogant to step off of his throne or too afraid to go and look for the baby, the child, the infant himself, and so sent the Magi, but who nevertheless was interested, though only because he was threatened by a baby, because he was the king. He was the king. He would bow down to no one else. He was the king. He would bow to no other. And so we are reminded what happens when people do not pay homage to God. When people refuse to bow down, when people refuse to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus, when people refuse to humble themselves and be attentive to God, when people do not honor God, when people do not seek God, when people do not submit themselves to God, other people get hurt. Other people suffer. This is always the case. Inevitably, it is always the case. We have seen genocide after genocide often perpetuated or allowed to happen 
by people who in name honor God, but do not honor God with their lives and their hearts. Are you with me? And I can't help but think that I am complicit in this as well, even today, over the course of my life, we as a nation, Shannon, the Magi went home They had completed their mission. Herod killed babies. Herod killed infants. Herod killed little boys. There can be no greater contrast. Dale Bruner wrote, Herod the big king who resists the little king is what much of our own heart is. More concisely, Herod is what I am deep down inside. I have never killed someone. I will never kill someone. I have never harmed a small child. And yet, Herod is all of us. We are Herod in ways. He is the deep sin, what theologians call original sin, serving himself, wanting always and only to be on the throne. And there's another comparison of kings here, of course, and it is Matthew's third reason for including an account of Herod and his killing spree and his good news about Jesus. King Herod the Great was by so many measures a successful leader. He was. He was powerful. He was strong. He was the unquestioned ruler Of that part of the world at that time, he reigned for 30, 35, almost 40 years, a long reign. He led in effective ways. He was responsible for great roads and temples and palaces, for great infrastructure, for the arts, for a revival of athletics for bringing Greek and then Roman culture into play in that part of Israel. He brought order into that part of the world. There was much that he did that would define and cause people to remember him and respect him as a great leader. He did not get the name Herod the Great because they were out of other names because there were no other names available, because there were many King Herods, but because he truly was, in many ways, great. When being considered for the position of king by the emperor, king of that part of the Roman Empire, his campaign slogan could have been, Make Palestine Great Again. And if it was, we would have to say that he succeeded. And he set the bar high. And into that world, and into Herod's kingdom, was born Jesus. Who certainly could have been influenced by the greatest king that the Jews had had for a long, long time. Are you with me? Because Jesus, you know, would grow up to talk about a kingdom. And kingdoms have kings. You know that Jesus talked about nothing more than he did kingdoms. 
about this kingdom, there was nothing he talked about as much. It was as if he was obsessed by or consumed by a kingdom. And the kingdom that he was born into and the kingdom that everyone knew was the kingdom that Herod had built and established and ruled over and reigned over. Do you see where this is going? Jesus certainly understood as a boy and as a young man that he had been born, that he had come to inaugurate and to establish and to usher in and to reveal a kingdom of which he would be more than just an ambassador of such. He would be its king. And any boy or young man raised in that place and at that time would have known of Herod's greatness and Herod's style of rule. And anyone seeking to become king or to oversee a kingdom might have most naturally used Herod's model, Herod's blueprint for building a kingdom, initiated a kingdom in Herod's way of royal greatness, taken Herod's road to success as a king. But Jesus' way was exactly the opposite polar opposite to the way of Herod. Matthew does this unusual thing in chapter 2 of his gospel. He refers to King Herod as king all the way up until the moment when the magi bow down. And never again does Matthew refer to Herod as king. Because in the bowing down of the magi, and by extension, our bowing down. There is a new king who is wholly different than Herod the Great and whose kingdom is different in every way than that of Herod. A king who will reign forevermore as we sung. Herod's reign was characterized by terror, by greed, by insecurity and killing. Jesus' reign was and is characterized by peace and generosity and hope and life. Herod's reign was characterized by what the world calls greatness, which Jesus redefined when he got down on his knees and washed his disciples' feet. Herod took away. Jesus gives. Herod sought to be served. Jesus said the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There is a way of leading that leads to death and a way of leading that leads to life. May we choose life. There is a way of following that leads to death and there is a way of following that leads to life. May we choose the way that leads to life. Let us pray.
God, Father of Jesus, we confess every one of us that in a variety of ways, large and small, mostly subtle, we are Herod. There is a part of Herod within us. Inherited from Adam, inherited from our parents, appropriated on our own, for which we are fully responsible. We confess this, we acknowledge this, we grieve this, we are sorry for this at the same time that we sometimes cling to this. Forgive us, heal us, redeem us, save us from ourselves, from a way that leads to death, from pride and greed and cruelty. Save us to yourself. Save us to your kingdom. Save us into your kingdom. Save us for the sake of your kingdom. Reign in us. Reign in our church. Reign in our homes. Reign in our world. Have your way. Bring about your kingdom. 